In Leviticus, in the Torah, it says, When you enter the land that I am giving you, the land shall observe a Sabbath of the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard, and gather in their yield. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of complete rest for the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. And you shall count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the period of seven weeks of years gives 49 years. Then you shall have the trumpet sounded loud. On the tenth day of the seventh month, on the Day of Atonement, you shall have the trumpet sounded throughout all your land. And you shall hallow the fiftieth year, and you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee. And in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, went to Nazareth in Galilee, where he had been brought up, and went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, and to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And Isaiah continues, The Lord has sent me to comfort all who mourn, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of faint spirit, and they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastation of many generations. Further powerful prophetic words now from the writer Clarissa Pinkola Estes, who a fine, fine storyteller. You were made for this, she says. Ours is not the task of fixing the entire world all at once, but of stretching out to mend the part of the world that is within our reach. Any small, calm thing that one soul can do to help another soul to assist some portion of this poor, suffering world, that will help immensely. It's not given to us to know which acts or by whom will cause the critical mass to tip towards an enduring good. What is needed for dramatic change is an accumulation of acts, adding, adding to, adding more, continuing. We know that it does not take everyone on earth to bring justice and peace, but only a small determined group who will not give up during the first, the second or the hundredth gale. One of the most calming and powerful actions you can do to intervene in a stormy world is to stand up and show your soul. Soul on deck shines like gold in dark times. The light of the soul throws sparks. It can send up flares, build signal fires, cause proper matters to catch fire. To display the lantern of soul in shadowy times like these, to be fierce and to show mercy towards others, both are acts of immense bravery and greatest necessity. 
Struggling souls catch light from other souls who are fully lit and willing to show it. If you would help to calm the tumult, this is one of the strongest things you can do. There will always be times when you feel discouraged. I too have felt despair many times in my life, but I do not keep a chair for it. I will not entertain it. It's not allowed to eat from my plate. In that spirit, I hope you will write this on your wall, she says. When a great ship is in harbour and moored, it is safe, there can be no doubt. But that is not what great ships are built for. Words from Clarissa Pinkola Estes. We've, we've just completed another small group here at Essex Church, this time focusing on the origins of our uh, liberal religious faith. And one of the surprises for some of us was just how very biblical those early free Christians were. They believed the Bible to be true, to be the word of God. And it wasn't really until about the 19th century that biblical scholarship began in earnest and a more liberal approach emerged. The issue centres around what's termed biblical authority. What is, the question goes, what is the Bible to you? Now, this would not matter so much were it not for the fact that in this country and abroad, in our own time, not hundreds of years ago, words of the Bible are being used to justify oppression of certain groups. Some people believe that the Bible is the word of God, every word of it, every word of it, therefore true, and then they find words within it to justify their particular moral stance. An email did the rounds on the internet years ago now. Um, Some of you will have read it. It still seemed quite relevant to me today, and it has some humour in it. It's it's a reply to the right-wing radio chat show host, Dr Laura Schlesinger. Her show was at one time the second most listened to radio show in the whole of the United States. She's known for her negative views on homosexuality and on modern pagan religious beliefs. And she used the Old Testament to back up, the the Old Testament book of Leviticus, to back up her views, advocating a biblical morality. Now, Leviticus, for those of you who aren't intimately connected with it, Leviticus is primarily a book of rules for the Hebrew tribes people. Some of those rules are highly relevant for life today, some perhaps less so. It contains guidance for the people that had probably been in existence, this guidance, in an oral form for hundreds of years. But it was probably collected together by a priestly source between 600 and 400 before the Common Era BC. Two and a half thousand years old. So here's just a few extracts from that spoof email letter to Dr Laura. Dear Dr Laura, thank you for doing so much to educate people regarding God's law. I've learned a great deal from your show and I try to share that knowledge with as many people as I can. When people try to defend the homosexual lifestyle, for example, I simply remind them that Leviticus 18.22 clearly states it to be an abomination. End of debate. But I do need some advice from you, however, regarding some of the specific laws and how to follow them. When 
I burn a bull on the altar as a sacrifice, I know it creates a pleasing odour for the Lord. The problem is my neighbours. They claim the odour is not pleasing to them. Should I smite them? I would like to sell my daughter into slavery, as sanctioned in Exodus 21, verse 7. In this day and age, what do you think would be a fair price for her? Um, Leviticus 25, 44, states that I may indeed possess slaves, both male and female, provided they are purchased from neighbouring nations. A friend of mine claims that this applies to Mexicans but not Canadians. Can you clarify? Why can't I own Canadians? I have a neighbour who insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35 clearly states he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself? And it goes on and on. There's some lovely ones here about um, um, poor vision, um, getting your hair trimmed, touching, touching a football. And my uncle has a farm. He violates Leviticus 19 by planting two different crops in the same field, as does his wife by wearing garments made of two different kinds of thread, a sort of cotton polyester blend. He also tends to curse and blaspheme a lot. Is it really necessary that we go to all the trouble of getting the whole town together to stone them? Couldn't we just burn them to death at a private family affair, like we do with people who sleep with their in-laws? And so on and so on. The writer ends. I know you've studied these things extensively, so I'm confident you can help. And thank you again for reminding us that God's word is eternal and unchanging. The emailed letter made its point. It's hard to cite biblical authority for some biblical passages and then conveniently ignore others. But of course, for me, that doesn't mean we should therefore disregard all that is contained in this collection of books that is the Bible. And it is Leviticus, which has a number of nasty sections, I must admit. It is Leviticus, though, that contains the idea of a Sabbath and a Jubilee year. All of which is a very long-winded way to make the link with the celebrations of last weekend, of our Queen's Diamond Jubilee, celebrating 60 years on the throne, linking in, as it did, with the celebration of Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee way back in June 1897, when it said that 30,000 children for various Sunday schools in this area were spread out all across the, uh, the railings in the park to wave at Her Majesty as she went by. 30,000 children in a Sunday school, an era I'd like to go back to. <laughs> so, the Jubilee, the Jubilee. Really, it, it's, it's a confusion of the word. It, 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 Jubilee comes from that Old Testament tradition, from those Hebrew tribes. And the word actually comes from the Hebrew word Jobel, referring to the ram's horn that you'll see on the front of your order of service sheet, that was blown to mark Israel's jubilee. It was then later confused with the Latin word jubilo, jubilo, meaning I rejoice. And then, of course, the, the radical challenge of the biblical jubilee was forgotten. 
because the, the message of the Jubilee was of wiping the slates clean. I highly recommend that you read Leviticus 25 because it mentioned things like land ownership. Every 50 years, the Lord was recommending that the ownership of land was wiped clean. The Lord reminded them that the people were only aliens and tenants in that land and that every 50 years, injustices should be righted. Slaves should be freed, but only if they were Hebrew slaves, the ones that you'd got from your neighbouring countries, you could keep those. Debts were cancelled and forgiveness was given. This was the, the central meaning of Jubilee, a really radical, transformative power that Jesus picks up in, in that piece from uh, Luke's Gospel. I'm reading here from um, a piece by Nick Spencer from his blog. This idea of the Jubilee was as brilliant in its simplicity as it was far-reaching in its repercussions. Having distributed the land equally among families, clans and tribes... The people were called once every 50 years to stop. Debts were cancelled. People returned to their ancestral lands. The land itself was given the chance to rest in that idea of the Sabbath year, every seven years, allowing your fields to remain fallow. In a single stroke, the poor were to be lifted up, the lost reintegrated, creation given a moment to breathe. How important is that? Creation given a moment to breathe and the birthright of future generations secured. The genius of the idea, he says, was not in its utopianism, but its realism. Early Israel did not pretend that people were naturally selfless or communistic. On the contrary, it presupposed a market economy, but tempered its tendency towards inequality and exclusion by basing it on an ineradicable stakeholder foundation. Every family knew that no matter how hard the times they fell on, their basic stake in society could not be lost for good. Conversely, the successful knew that no matter how well they did for themselves, they would never simply be able to rest on inherited wealth. So radical was this idea, it's very unlikely that the Hebrew tribes ever kept to it. And yet, it's there, written, enshrined, to inspire us onwardly. So last weekend, probably the last thing on most people's minds was economic, social or environmental justice. And it's fine to celebrate But amidst the celebration, it's good to hear that distant sound of the ram's horn that reminds us again and again to try and make this world a fairer place. That's the use of the word jubilee that's been used in the Jubilee Debt Campaign, which began way back just before the year 2000. Twelve years later, a campaign that's needed just as much as ever, is it not? The Jubilee Debt Campaign's main um, campaigning issues are to cancel the unjust debts of the most indebted nations, to promote just and progressive taxation rather than excessive borrowing, and to stop harmful lending, which forces countries into debt. So, when it comes to biblical authority, I guess I am in the pick-and-choose brigade, for there are elements in this book of Leviticus that really can still provide a moral compass and quite a radical and revolutionary one for us at that. 
and there are elements that are just purely related, I think now, to a small tribal community establishing the first monotheistic religion and, and turning from nobads to settled farmers. But the Jubilee, now there's much to bear in mind there. If you look at the um, quotation on the front of your order of service sheet, it's written by someone from Mar- Maria Harris. Your existence, she says, is a jubilee, and all the days of your life may be holy to you. And in her book, Proclaim Jubilee, a spirituality for the 21st century, she encourages all of us to consider the importance of rest, restitution, wiping the slate clean, and taking a time of jubilee for ourselves, for the land that is our body and our mind. Sometimes we need to sit and think, and sometimes we need to just sit. Would you join me, if you wish now, have a look at the, um, the words to say in unison that are on your hymn sheet. Let's join together, if you will. May there be a time of jubilee for all peoples of the world. For all those who are wrongfully imprisoned or economically burdened. For everyone who is not allowed to be who they truly are or who is judged unfairly. Let us join in building a world for all people. A world where justice shall roll down like waters and peace like an ever-flowing stream. What can we say to that? But... Amen.